Welcome to Retirementals, a podcast that dives headfirst into the issues facing the financial sector at the intersection of investment, technology and financial advice. Hosted by Abraham Oksanya, you can expect raw honesty, critical analysis and energetic interviews. Here is your host, Abraham Okasanya. Hello and welcome to Retirementals. It's great to have you all here today. Oh boy, am I excited about my guest today. He's the grandfather of the Sustainable Withdrawal Rate Framework. I am talking about none other than the legendary Bill Bengen. Hi, Bill. Welcome to Retirementals. Abraham, thanks for having me. I'm looking it's, forward to this. It's, it's great to, to have you on the, on the show, and I am really looking forward to um, our conversation today. I've got a very long list of um, topics that I, that I want us to, to, to explore all on that, the, the Sustainable Drawery Framework. But before we dive right in, I want to go back into your background a little bit and understand a little bit more about how you got into into the profession. There's a joke I tell every time I give a presentation, and then, of course, your name comes up in my presentation. I say things along the lines of Bill Bengen uh, studied at MIT. He wanted to join the US space program, but for whatever reason, he wasn't accepted into the program. So he did the next best thing and became a financial advisor. And, and everybody likes that joke. So tell us, Bill, how, how did you get into into the profession? Well, uh, after we sold our family business in New York, uh, we moved out to the West Coast, California. Uh, I took about six months off and just looked at what I wanted to do because I, I didn't, I thought 40 years old was awfully early to retire. Uh, and uh, I looked at a number of uh, interesting things, uh, computer work, uh, writing uh, fiction. Uh, and uh, I realized that I, with my financial circumstances would need financial planning guidance anyway. So I said, uh, why don't I teach myself all these things, go through a program and become a financial advisor myself and help people with it. Because it was something I could do out of an office in my home, which was very appealing to me. I, I really didn't want to commute anymore. And I uh, decided on that and went through the CFP program and the master's program in financial planning. And uh, that's how it all began. Wow. So, so this was in the 1980s, late, late 80s? Yeah, late 80s, early 90s, yes. Incredible. So, so you got into, into the program. Uh, you became a, a, a financial advisor. Uh-huh. And what, what led you to, to this research around what is now known as the, as the you know, safe withdrawal rate or the, the, the 4% rule? Sure, and we didn't even have a name for it back then. Right. <laughs> Safe withdrawal, sustainable withdrawal rates, those are all terms to come. Uh, I had clients uh, who were coming to me and were starting to think of retirement, even though it was 20 some years off. These were the early baby boomers such as myself. Uh, and they asked me two questions I didn't have answers for. Uh, how much will I be able to take out of my retirement savings when I retire and you know how should I set up my investments you know to maximize you know that return and I looked through all the material I had for my CFP courses my master's program I, I 
I researched it. And of course, in those days, you didn't have the internet to the extent we have today. Right. So it was a lot tougher to do that research, but I couldn't come up with anything. Uh, so I decided to do the research myself. Uh, I grabbed a book of uh, containing investment returns, inflation, uh, fired up my, my trusty Lotus spreadsheets, you know, and uh, got to work trying to find answers myself. So, so this is incredible, though, that at the time, financial planning was already, um, you know, an established profession. And you, you went through, you know, what even today would be considered a very rigorous um, academic program, i.e. your CFP, a master's degree. And, and at the time, th there was nothing to, you know, on... I mean, was there was what did people do at the time in terms of drawing money from their from their retirement portfolio? You know, that's a good uh, a good question. At the time, people pretty much went by rules of thumb that were given to them by other people, uh, friends, financial advisors, without any real you know theoretical or empirical uh, basis for doing so. Uh, some people would say, oh, you're retired now. You can't afford to be in stocks. So you got to go to bonds, uh, all bonds. Or they would say, no, my goodness gracious, you have to have a lot of stocks in your portfolio else you won't be able to withdraw money. And then they would say 6%, 7%, 3%. It was all over the lot. Uh, and that was not a satisfactory <laughs> background for me to use to advise my clients. Yeah, so you, you began the research. Can you just, um, sort of, for, for a lay person, can you just go through the, the process, what you did with the data? You had the data going back 1926 yeah. at the time. What, what, what did you do? What kind of data set? And, and what is it? How, how did you arrive at your results? Essentially, what I did was reconstruct the portfolios of retirees beginning, you know, in uh, 1926 and, and on up, you know, through as far as I could that had 30 years uh, of experience. Uh, I gave them uh, large cap stocks. I gave them intermediate term government bonds and I gave them the actual inflation rate that they experienced. And I just put them in a mix uh, and let the portfolio perform as it would have if they had invested it basically in, in low cost uh, index funds. Mm. Uh, and uh, in each case, then I was able to uh, stress test those portfolios with withdrawals, uh, starting with a high rate, let's say 7% uh, and bring it on down and, and try to find out where the portfolio broke down, where it failed to last 30 years, which was really an interesting experiment. And what did you find? Well, I found that in the worst case, the unlucky retiree retired, you know, uh, let's say in early 1969, late 1968, um, they could only take out, uh, my original research was about 4.2%, but I later upgraded that to 4.5%. Uh, and then their money would run out after 30 years. And they were unlucky because they ran into two big bear markets early in retirement, 69, 70, 72, 73, or 73, 74. Uh, which is the first thing you want to avoid if you can do it, pick your retirement carefully. And the other <laughs> one is that they encountered very high inflation. Uh, and most people are aware how damaging inflation is to retirement portfolio. If we are increasing our withdrawals for inflation each year mm. and inflation is high, 
we are really jacking up those withdrawals every year. And unfortunately, that's fixed. I mean, bear markets come and go. But once you add 10% a year to your uh, withdrawals and it's locked, uh, it really starts chewing up uh, your retirement investments very rapidly. And where, where did this idea of the worst case scenario come from? Because you, you know, you ran every 30 rolling period. Yeah. I, I remember reading your papers on this. Initially, you were using quarterly data and uh, or, or you used annual data and then maybe moved to quarterly, something along that line. So you ran every rolling 30 odd year yeah. period and, and the 1969 retiree turned to be the worst case scenario. Why the worst case scenario? Why not, you know, some might say, well, you know, the, 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 the 10 percentile, for instance. Sure. Uh, I created a chart where I had a bar for each retiree. Uh, and I started with, uh, you know, 7%, brought it down. And you could see in the 60s and 70s uh, was the period that was most troubling to retirees. Mm. Uh, and I felt that uh, if people wanted to be absolutely safe. We're talking in context of historical experience. I can't predict what's going to happen. Uh, they could take this four and a half percent and use it. And no matter what happened, as long as history uh, pretty much repeated itself uh, into the future, uh, they would be okay. And that was very reassuring to a lot of people to know that there had been a rate that all retirees were able to get through retirement with, without having to make any adjustments. Brilliant stuff. So you 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 compiled your research. You you know wrote wrote, wrote um, you know a, a, a very powerful article which was ultimately published in the in the Journal of Financial Planning. Yeah. What what was the response that you got both from you know practitioners and 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 the wider industry to to your paper? You know, it, it varied widely. Uh... In some cases, um, I, I got hate mail <laughs> and nasty, oh. nasty comments from folks who perhaps had, these are perhaps from advisors who had been you know, telling their clients certain things for years and believed them. And then here comes along, you know, this upstart advisor who's only been an advisor for a couple of years and says, sorry, no, that doesn't work. <laughs> it's not 7%, it's not 2%, it's 4.5%. So I guess it must have embarrassed them in front of their clients. and. They didn't believe my findings either. They said, how can that be? Uh, and then there are other, many other advisors who I was very grateful for, who, who saw what there was virtual value in what I did. And they were very complimentary, encouraged me to continue my research, which I really appreciated. Did, did you have any idea that this was going to become, essentially, you, you, you were trying to move away from rule of thumb, right? And, and you yeah. dug into the data. Uh, and then someone, I, I assume, journalist, somebody said this became the rule, the 4% rule, and then we ended up with another rule of thumb. That's right. That's right. Well, I, you know, to a certain extent, it's happening today. There are, there are some folks who say, uh, well, 4% or 4.5% is too much, given the low mm. rates of return. Uh, so it should be 3% or 2%, or I even heard less than 1%. But I haven't yet seen a scenario uh, presented to me that, you know, that supports that thesis, you know, mm. uh, so I don't know what those numbers are based on. And that was true 30 years ago. And, you know, the rules of thumb uh, were there. And uh, I guess things have to change. So 
I want to I want to move on a little bit because you you did extensive additional exp extensive work on this. So there's a couple of different directions that I want to take this. One is first of all your your views on um, expense ratios. So obviously in your original research and and still um, you know ongoing research. You, you generally don't include the expense ratio because you use the asset class data. Um, but of course, there is, um, you know, the, the, the expense ratio of the, of the low cost index fund. There is the advisor fees, um, you know, baked into all that. And how do you tend to approach that um, when you're thinking about the, the worst case scenario being, you know, sort of 4.5%? Okay, are you talking about investment management expenses essentially or within the Correct. funds or? Yeah, Correct. well, it's interesting because when I started 30 years ago, there were actually, I, my research assumed that the investment expense would essentially be very close to zero, that uh, the funds you use would track their indices exactly. And there were very few funds back then uh, that, that could be set up. I think some of the Vanguard funds were, right. were relatively new. Uh, and I use them as a model. But today, of course, you know, uh, almost all the friction has been removed from the system. Uh, ETFs have practically zero management costs. You can buy individual stocks, but no commission. It's a great situation for investors and retirees in particular, because more of the money stays with them. You know, that, that's that's incredible. And then let, let's talk about um, asset allocation. So. Your original research was, you know, 50% U.S. large cap, and then, um, you know, 50% intermediate government bonds. Um, you you then expanded that to cover small cap stocks, and and that's when you sort of shifted from the, you know, 4% to 4.5%. Talk a little bit about about the role of diversification of asset classes in in the retirement portfolio and what that does to the withdrawal rate sure uh and i'm sure we could verify this you know you developed some software which i've been looking forward to test a lot of these ideas on but i started out with two asset classes and i added a third and uh the small caps and it significantly increased uh the withdrawal rate and uh, I thought it always felt it was reasonable to assume that if you diversify the portfolio even further, as most advisors do, that you would be able to achieve even higher withdrawal rates. And that appears to be the case. Uh, what started out as a 4% rule became the 4.5% rule, and maybe it's 5%. It might even be a little bit more than that today, you know? So some people, folks are going one direction, they're going toward 3%. I'm going the other way. <laughs> We're going to find out who is correct here pretty soon. Well, 30 years so far, I think you're doing, you're doing it pretty well, um, uh, Bill. The other thing is on this, do you have any thoughts on this international or global diversification? Um, Professor Wade Fowles done some work on, on that side of things. Do, do you have any thoughts on what the likely impact on, on the, the withdrawal rate might be? Yeah, I think uh, if... If an investment adds diversification value, which means, you know, there's a couple of things. There's the return it generates and also the correlation it has with other assets. But that's favorable. Uh, and that includes international stocks. Uh, 
more so than ever, uh, because in this environment, they're much better valued. So emerging markets, international, uh, I think are crucial for investors to have in their portfolio today, even if they don't immediately, you know, generate an advantage over, you know, U.S. stocks. I think U.S. stocks are so overpriced uh, at some point uh, that's going to turn around. Yeah, the way I tend to think about this is to say that, you know, these these international stocks might not add additional, um, you know, performance necessarily, but as the sort of sustainable withdrawal rate framework is based on the worst case scenario, in the worst case scenario, it makes sense to think that they will provide some kind of... um, sort of d- downside protection in, in that particularly bad scenario. Oh, I, I absolutely agree with that. I think you could actually uh, verify that from my earlier research where I used just two asset classes. Uh, I noticed that when you combine, if you just use 100% stocks, you couldn't achieve that low withdrawal, that you know, 4.2%. But when you add bonds and bonds that return far less than stocks, they gave you that diversification value uh, and they raised the, the uh, withdrawal rate, even though they're a much lower returning asset. So you're absolutely correct in that. So one thing that comes up all the time, um, especially when we start to talk about, um, you know, this framework, is people talk about cash. And, and I remember reading one of your papers where you said something to the effect of, Cash is trash. You you tested these ideas of well, what if I kept some of the 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 portfolio in cash and during periods of down you know downturn in in, in the capital market, I use that cash to you know to 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 draw on to fund my withdrawals. Do you have any views on that? Have you updated your thoughts on on, on that side of things? I didn't realize I had said cash is trash. And I, I beg forgiveness for that statement. That was a rash statement to make. Uh, cash has its place in a portfolio. I think when I looked at bonds, whether you use uh, long-term bonds or intermediate-term bonds or substitute a lot of cash, for the intermediate, it came out to be about the same on effect on a withdrawal rate. So yes. that having cash in portfolio, although, you know, in this environment when cash is earning zero, uh, Bonds are earning not much more. I don't know if that's still true, but uh, I, I think when valuations are high uh, and there's concern about you know a stock market, big stock market decline coming sometime down the road, I think having cash makes sense uh, because for the retiree, rule number one is don't let your nest egg get stepped on. Okay, preserve that nest egg at all costs so you can fight another day. Uh, you don't want to get beat up by a 50 or 60% decline in the stock market early in retirement uh, if you can help to avoid it. That's my view anyway. Now a word from our sponsor. Nikki Heaton Jones is the Managing Director and the Chief Investment Officer at Betafolio, the high-tech, low-cost, discretionary model portfolio manager. Can you sum up Betafolio's investment philosophy? Our investment philosophy is really simple. Um, We know that asset allocation drives returns and we know that forecasting is rarely successful and more often than not, it destroys value. Um, And clients get the best results from owning the right mix of defensive and growth assets 
with a good level of diversification in the right proportions for their individual needs and without overpaying for unnecessarily complex investment products. So it's we're kind of the Ron Steele of investment portfolio in a way. It just does what it says it does. It's uncomplicated, straightforward, with no bells and whistles. We want to deliver market return for clients. Thank you very much, Nikki. So so let's let's talk about you know some sort of uh, ideas about dynamic withdrawals and and the impact of inflation so first of all the one major confusion that i find when i talk to people about the 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 sustainable withdrawal framework is you know this idea that um the withdrawal rises in line with inflation every single every single year throughout retirement that's right and you know people will say things like when they when they think of you know the four percent rule they say they don't intuitively think about the impact of um you know the impact of um, inflation um and and that that is baked into the framework so i i, I guess the question is well is it is it a fair assumption that people's expenditure will rise in line with inflation or is there a case for well actually if you saying well if you don't um, increase the withdrawal in, in line with inflation especially in bad years then you you dampen the the impact of you know uh, inflation on, on on the portfolio particularly in bad times what's your thoughts on this idea of increasing withdrawal in line with inflation or, or not? Um, you know, I think it's a natural tendency of humans to, uh, when they're in a bad, bear market uh, and they're worried about their portfolio declining, that they will pull their ears and they will pull back on expenses. And I think that's, that's good. There's no reason that you have to follow, you know, the 4% rule and increase each year. If you want to take one year where you don't increase it or decrease it slightly, that could improve your chances later on. So yeah, I endorse that approach. I think it makes a lot of sense if people have the flexibility in their spending to be able to do that. And does that, is that the sort of thinking behind the floor and ceiling approach? So the idea that you can set a floor um, you know, of, of the 4% um, on, on your withdrawal, but maybe in years where, you know, the capital market is particularly generous that you can actually, you know, maybe take more than 4% in those years. Yes, uh, I, I guess you could do that uh, in years which, uh, you just have to be careful about getting carried away with that because you can have a couple of good years in a row of the stock market you know, like we did in the late 90s, you had five years in a row with 20% gains, and you get in the habit of taking bigger and bigger chunks, all of a sudden you get hit with an enormous bear market, you know, uh, can you make that adjustment psychologically? So I, I think you can do that, but you have to do it sparingly. Okay, so let's talk about your, your latest research, which you published in the advisor perspective. You've been looking at, you know, the interaction between inflation and CAPE ratio or, or equity, you know, equity uh -huh. valuation 
talk a little bit about that. What's what's the thinking behind that, that latest paper? Yeah, it was very exciting for me this summer because I've been doing this research now for almost 30 years. Uh, and I had a lot of pieces in place to develop a complete you know, process for managing withdrawals. But there was a big hole at the very beginning where you know, most people said, well, let's take the 4.5% rate. We know that historically people have been able to take 7% on average and some lucky people as high as 13. But there was no rational way to develop a basis to select one of those higher withdrawal rates. Well, finally, this summer, I found a way. I started with some research another advisor had done uh, some years ago in which he said, look, when the stock markets are cheap, withdrawal rates are high and the reverse. And I use that as a starting point. And I realized that if you added inflation in there at the start of retirement, if you had a low inflation environment, withdrawals were higher. If you had a high inflation environment, like the 70s, you had to take out less. And you combine the two of them magically. Mm. Uh, they had enough power to be able to predict uh, what rate historically you could have used a very high degree of accuracy, like close to 90%. Uh, and this was the last piece of the puzzle. This is the missing link. So now we can pretty well tell clients with confidence, you know, some years, maybe when things <laughs> get more reasonable in stock valuations, Instead of four and a half, why don't you take five and a half? Why don't you take six or seven? Because, you know, it indicates, uh, and it works because if you look back at the, the bottom of the bear market in 2009 in, in March, uh, when stocks were cheap and inflation was low, uh, my, my new discovery indicated you could take six and a half percent. And that's worked so far very, very well. Even though they're taking out more than the four and a half, their portfolio has grown dramatically in value. Uh, it's a healthy approach to it. So I'm looking forward to the day that we can use it. <laughs> <laughs> so, so your thoughts on where we are today, obviously, you know, the, the market valuation is quite high today, but that's sort of mixed with very, very low inflation, although we don't know what inflation is going to do. But, but where's, where are you in your thinking? If a, a, a retiree who is starting today, what, 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 would you be, what would you be suggesting to them? No, it's really tough uh, because the situation we're in currently is really almost off the charts. Mm. We, have, we don't have any records of a 30-year period starting out with uh, market valuations this high. So we can't be 100% sure uh, you know, what rules to apply, but we do have low inflation going for us. So I think if people take four and a half to five percent they're probably going to be okay but unfortunately we won't know that probably for another 30 years you know and then you can have me back in your program and tell me why i was wrong <laughs> uh, and uh, and and then of course i mean i think the the the, the powerful thing is that you know the 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 four four point five percent is is a starting point clearly there is a case for tracking that on an ongoing basis to see how that that evolves and then making a cost correction adjusting the withdrawal at some point um, right. you know along the retirement journey yeah it's important people realize that uh, a, a retirement withdrawal plan is just like any other plan or a state plan and an insurance plan they have to be monitored over time and sometimes adjusted if they no longer meet the original goals. 
And uh, you're right, my method now basically consists of identifying uh, some year in the past whose uh, starting conditions were very similar uh, to what the client is experiencing and using that as a template, which they can then measure their progress again year by year for 30 years. Uh, and if they deviate from it, they can they have to take less time, even take more if they're doing much better than the template they indicate. So it's, it's uh, a two-edged sword. Do you do you have any thoughts about um, bond yields? I have read and and, and defended uh, your work, uh, but I've read several um, you know different articles essentially saying, well, because we're in an environment where bond yields are historically low, they, they're lower than they've, they've ever been, certainly in the last uh, in the last you know 30, 30 odd years, therefore, the 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 four percent rule can't hold anymore do do you have any thoughts on the impact or the likely impact of of bond yields on on sustainable withdrawal rates well i mean it, it the possibility is that they could be correct okay but i i have yet to see a specific scenario presented to me which reflects their views on hard black and white numbers on a sheet and until I see that, you know, I'm going to say they're doing qualitative criticism, but the quantitative criticism is the one that really uh, will, will convince me. And I haven't seen that yet. The, the other thing that the, the other criticism of your work that, that I come across a lot is, you know, talking about um, the, the use of Monte Carlo simulations as opposed uh -huh. to historical returns. And I've always thought this to be odd, right? You know, because I say, well, Bill's work is based on, you know, empirical, you know, empirical data, right? Observed data. And we can extend that data even for longer if we want. But this idea that, um, you know, we can plug assumptions into Monte Carlo simulations, I put in expected return and inflation and somehow think that that is more potent or that's more powerful than observation, you know, historical observation of return over the last hundred years. Um, I, I don't understand what, how that can be more powerful, but there you have, you know, but there you go. People make this, uh, you know, these um, comparisons between, you know, historical returns and um, simulated returns um, based on these models. Do, do you have any, any thoughts or counter arguments on, on that? Yeah, I do. I, you know, the Monte Carlo and similar approaches have their place in financial planning. There are almost some applications where you have to use them, but you have to be very careful uh, because they're basically models uh, of, of actuality and not actuality themselves. So uh, if you don't specify, you know, the input variables and the relations between them, you may end up with some output, which may make sense in the context of what your, your model, but may never occur in reality. And if it doesn't have a chance of occurring reality, it's kind of worthless. So uh, I would say that uh, you're useful, uh, but neither method, neither theirs or my uh, empirical method has any predictive uh, uh, ability at all. We cannot predict the future. All we can do is 
look at the past. That's all I do, basically. And I'm like a reporter. I'm going to the past and saying, this is what happened. I'll let you know. I don't know what will happen in the future. But in case you wanted some guidance from the past, I can give that to you. And they're doing the same thing, except they're able to test, you know, many, many more scenarios that I could possibly do than I have available to me. The question is, are those scenarios real? <laughs> could they ever occur in the world? Yes, yes. No, it's incredible. I like the, the position of humility that, that you approach this with to say, well, look, we don't know what the future is. We can't predict the future. All we can do is to, you know, stress test what your plan based on observation of, um, you know, based on the weight of history and, and offer some, some guidance and track things and see how they evolve. I, th I think that's, um, you know, an incredibly powerful um, approach. Now, I want to just to start to wrap things up here, Bill. So you're, you're retired. You've been retired now for a, a number of years. So, so tell us about it. What's, what's retirement been like, like for you? Well, I, it's hard to call it retirement. You know, I, did, I retired from financial advising, but now, you know, I spend a lot of time researching the 4% rule. I've written three novels. I'm trying to get them published. Uh, I have a wow. young grandson who, uh, which is one of the main reasons I retired because I want to be a good grandfather. I want to have time for him. And now the COVID comes along. <laughs> it's hard to see him, but that's a very busy life. I, almost every day, you know, I try to do something creative, try to learn something new. Uh, I like to play tennis and golf, but you know, not that alone. There are a lot of other things in life and, Retirement is wonderful in that sense, because uh, I don't think of it as retirement. I think it's just a whole new phase. It's, I, I, I totally agree. It's, it's incredible. So how have you managed your own portfolio throughout this time? Well, I used to be buy, hold investor in the 80s and 90s. Uh, and then we got into that first bid um, bear market in the early 2000s. Uh, and uh, I've seen the increasing involvement in central banks, including our own Federal Reserve and the markets. It's, uh, you wonder whether the markets really can be called markets anymore because price discovery you know, has evaporated. But I feel that I can no longer be buying a hold investor when there are so many outside forces impacting markets uh, and creating huge swings. Uh, you know, we've had some pretty big bear markets. The last three have been 35 to 50% or more, 55%. Uh, that's never happened before, historically. Uh, it's pretty amazing. And uh, I think, uh, I don't really like to sit there and, and watch my portfolio pounded by a 50% bear market. Uh, I, I have a saying that says, uh, with all these hammers we have hanging over our head, we all don't have to behave like nails. You know, we can go out and do other things. So uh, I manage my uh, investments actively. I will reduce my exposure to equities when I feel risk is high. I think risk, certainly in the United States, is high today. So I don't have my full allocation right now. But I'm looking forward to the opportunity uh, when those valuations improve. And I, and I can very aggressively get back into stocks because I still think they're long-term, the, the foundation of, of you know, investment wealth for most people. So, so this is interesting. The guy who taught us all to be buy and hold 
um, is, is actually, uh, shall I say, closet market timer. So, so let's... <laughs> Oh, no, you're using that nasty term. <laughs> I like to use risk manager. <laughs> risk manager. Let, let's unpack that a little bit. So you, so so I assume that you use index funds, but you 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 time I, I, I yes. You time I, I your use, allocation to 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 the to the market. Yeah, although you know, I, I'm very interested why people think that I recommended buy and hold. I used buy and hold approach in my research because it was the easiest way to analyze investments because there are so many different ways to manage risk. You know, it'd be difficult to, to do it in a uniform fashion. But uh, uh, over time, personally, yes, I've become more active uh, and more risk oriented uh, and not passive. No question about it. And I think I and um, how's that worked out for you? Are you happy the way, you know, because I, I look at the last, certainly the last, you know, 10, ten years, yeah. um, even including the recent market downturn that we have um, in March of last year, you know, the market rebounded very, very quickly. And so if you were sitting in cash, to, you know, I know you're not completely in cash, but, you know, if you're sitting with a substantive proportion of your portfolio in cash, throughout this period, you must be looking at the S&P 500 and wondering, oh gosh, I, I missed wow. out on, on quite a little bit of return there. Yeah, um, you know, I'm not concerned about missing out on return. I'm concerned about protecting my nest egg. Uh, you, you, you wanna watch out about that uh, fear of missing out syndrome. Mm. Uh, back in March, before that bear market hit, I was only about 10% equities. So I only lost about four or 5% of that bear market, okay? But as the market went down, I bought. So I came out, I, I didn't buy as much as I would have liked because it never got to the valuations that you know, were truly appealing. But I ended up with about 25 to 30% equities. Come, so I went up a lot faster than I went down. And I'm happy with that because uh, I made enough you know, to finance, and that's really what counts, that you make enough to finance it. Not that you get every single last penny uh, out of the market's return. I think that's a dangerous way to look at it. Do you see, uh, actually, this is interesting. Do, do you see, so, so obviously, the, the overall market, if you're looking at valuation, the overall market, um, you know, the, the valuations on the high side, historically, but do you see pockets where valuation might be quite attractive, maybe international, maybe even um, sort of value type stocks? Do you have any, any views on, on that side of things? Yeah, I, I think definitely international valuations are better in equities than the United States, particularly emerging markets and emerging market bonds and emerging markets value stocks. I mean, you could almost load up on them with impunity and have... <laughs> good returns over the next 10 years. Well, you know, the expectations for United States stocks uh, may be flat or negative for the next 10 years when you get to these levels of valuations. So yeah, there are places where you can find value, hide out, you know, um, but we'll have to see. I mean, uh, this market just keeps wanting to go up and up and these are the dangerous times for investors, you know, to get pulled into it uh, and, uh, get fully invested and then get clobbered. 
I guess the, there's another dimension to the, the sustainable draw rate research that, uh, that you're bringing up in this, and um, which is what happens when you use market valuation um, in not not just to manage your withdrawal because you have control over that, but you use market valuation to um, you know to gauge your allocation to the market. Um, sure. and, yeah, I, I think that's that's an interesting perspective to the research. Um, I I might have seen at least one research on that 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 is using sort of market valuation to to manage allocation to equity but i guess what you just i'm i'm trying to recollect that research is you yeah. find very long periods that you will be sitting in cash yeah and from a behavioral standpoint just to say well look um you know the cape ratio is in you know in the top decile historically and therefore i'm going to avoid equities or limit my equity exposure um it's it's a very very difficult thing to to tolerate behaviorally because you're going to end up sitting in cash for a, a, a very long time and um well that's true and, and i don't use valuations solely uh, as my indicator, I, I have subscribed to some services. I use a combination of technical momentum, momentum indicators as well as valuation. But I think you could use the valuation only and do okay uh, as an individual. Uh, as a professional, it's probably, you know, the career risk problem <laughs> where, you, you know, you sit in cash for, for five or six or seven years and all your clients see their neighbors getting rich and they become <laughs> upset. And it'll turn out you'll be right because there have been periods of time like uh, you know, the 2008 crash, you could have been in, uh, in treasuries for 13 years and you would have dramatically outperformed uh, stocks uh, over those you know, 1996 to 2009. Uh, so it works, but it's just difficult for professional investors to do it because of the nature of human emotion. So if they're going to do it, I think they need to use some combination, some moving average, some combination with technical momentum indicators. Uh, and I think you can get better results, lower risk anyway, which, you know, I think most, most of my clients appreciated the lower risk approach. Bibangan, it's been incredible talking to you. Um, you know, when we started this conversation, I couldn't have guessed that we would end up uh, talking about, uh, you know, market valuation and, and, um, and uh, you know, and uh, active management uh, or, or, or risk management, as you call it. So it's been, it's been a fascinating um, conversation. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you for your wisdom. Thank you for all that you've done for, for, for the profession. I guess, um, you know, the, the, the final question I have for you is, is, is there anything that you'd, you'd like to, to talk about? Our, our profession seems to have a single-minded devotion to buy and hold, and I don't understand why completely. Uh, I think the profession needs to give itself a chance to examine alternatives, at least study them, and or provide justification for a buy and hold approach. It's a valid way to, to invest, but it's not the only way. 
Uh, and uh, I hope at some point there'll be enough open-mindedness uh, among practitioners to consider alternative ways, because I, I think they'll benefit from it. You know, I, I think they'll, their clients will perceive they will be adding value by doing that. Well, if you, if you keep talking about it, uh, maybe more and more people will listen. Yeah. Well, who knows? Who listens to an old man, retired man? <laughs> we do, Bill. We do. Uh, final thoughts. I still continue my research, and I hope in, in future years to have more results to share with folks, you know, to help them in this particular area. I, I, there's a lot to be uncovered yet, in my opinion. I'm like an archaeologist, like Indiana Jones of finance, you know, trying to dig things up with interesting nuggets. Bill Bengen, thank you for your time. Really appreciate thank it. Thank you too, Abraham. It was wonderful. I'll be remiss if I don't thank my incredible team who worked very hard to put this program together, led by my producer, Hannah Dickinson. Thank you. Thank you very much, guys. I'd like to thank our sponsors, Timeline App, the retirement planning software, and Bitfolio, the high-tech, low-cost, flat-fee model portfolio manager. And to you, our listeners, thank you for your time. I hope you've had as much fun listening to the program as we have making it. You can find more about the show at retirementals.co.uk and you can follow me on Twitter. My handle is Abraham on Money. Until next time, thank you and goodbye.